Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host and the podfather of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I am glad you're with us. I'd be forced to endure the pain of black hairy tongue if you made me speak the words you missed this week's show. Associate producer Kate, what's coming up this week? Hey, Tony. This week it's donor dominance. Donor-centric doesn't mean donor-dominant. Ian McQuillan shares his research and thinking on donor power structures in fundraising. For instance, let's work at the sector, organizational and individual levels, to dismantle patriarchal structures. Ian is director of the Rogare Fundraising Think Tank. On Tony's Take Two. Fourth quarter approacheth. We're sponsored by DonorBox. Outdated donation forms blocking your supporters' generosity? DonorBox. Fast, flexible, and friendly fundraising forms for your nonprofit. DonorBox.org. And by Kila. Grow revenue, engage donors, and increase efficiency with Kila, the fundraiser CRM. Visit Kila.co to join the thousands of fundraisers using Kila to exceed their goals. Here is Donor Dominance. It's a pleasure to welcome Ian McQuillan to Nonprofit Radio. He is director of the international fundraising think tank, Rogare. Rogare aims to help fundraisers better use theory and evidence by translating academic ideas into professional practice and building fundraising's knowledge base. Ian is recognized as a leading thinker on fundraising ethics. He's at Ian McQuillan, and the think tank, which he founded in 2014, is at rogare.net. From Portsmouth, England, Ian, welcome to Nonprofit Radio. Thank you very much for having me, um, Tony. And the way you spelled out and read out our little bio biography about what Rogare does, it makes me think maybe I need to change it and make it a bit punchier. Why? I think it's fine. Uh, you you think it's what punchy? You think it sounds dull and boring? It gets it. It gets it. It gets it. It gets it across. But maybe yeah. we've had it for a while. Maybe it's time to refresh the brand and the mission a bit. Oh, all right. Well, brand refreshing. All right, I I see. But I think I think folks understand, and they'll understand yeah. better how you're you're translating uh, academia, academic thinking, into professional practice as we uh, have our discussion about uh, donor dominance and uh, donor power structures and how these impact fundraisers, how these impact uh, individual uh, nonprofits, how they impact the sector wide um, and what individuals, nonprofits and the sector can do to maybe, Fight back. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe fights. To, I, I hate to be in a uh, like sound like an, a, a belligerent American. Everything's a fight and everything's a competition. But uh, how we can um, manage our donors so that uh, these power structures maybe are are become a more more level field hmm. for 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 everyone for the donors as well as for the for the fundraisers, the sectors, the sector, and the uh, the individual nonprofit. So I'm I'm. I'm looking forward to a conversation about donor dominance. What I, I, 
what what got you into this? Uh, I know there were some incidents that brought you to the work. Maybe uh, maybe reveal some of those before we get into uh, the substance and and how it appears itself, how it shows itself. Well, well, the one that really brought us to the idea of donor dominance, which is not a phrase that we have come up with, donor dominance was used in an academic article way back in the early noughties in 2003. Uh, and it is describing an imbalance of power where the donor can exhibit controlling behavior and that can lead to compromising the mission of an organization or its ability to serve its beneficiaries. So most fundraisers will be aware of the idea of mission creep, where they maybe the donor tries to exert an, an influence over, over the mission to maybe follow the donor's agenda or the ends or things that they want to do. So the idea that donors will have and can might have this power is not new or unusual to fundraisers. And if you kind of just try and think about it from first principles, all relationships can be analyzed and thought of in some term of power differential or power dynamic. You know, when you think of a customer and a retailer, there's a power dynamic there and one has more power than the other. And sometimes that power shifts. So when it comes to charities and their fundraisers who are their agents asking donors for money, the donor has something the charity wants, which is their wealth, their philanthropy, maybe their influence, uh, all sorts of ways that they can support, not just money, um, time and treasure and influence as well. And the donor doesn't have to give that. The donor can withhold that. So there's that power imbalance already. The donor has some, something that the charity wants and they have to ask for it and be nice to get it. So there's not saying that it inevitably leads to any abuse of power, but there is the potential for the abuse of power. You can see that it is just there. Now, people in all walks of life behave abominably all the time. People <laughs> just behave badly. You see it everywhere in all walks of life. People are abusive to other people. They talk down to, st to staff, pe to people they believe are beneath, beneath them. They're not nice to their friends and relatives. Um, it's not saying that all people don't behave well. There are lots of saints, there are lots of angels, there are lots of people that don't behave well. And I think it's kind of slightly naive to expect that just because somebody is a donor and they're doing a good thing for society and they're expressing their philanthropy, that automatically means they will also be saints in the behavior in yeah. of yeah. life. So there is, you can see, whether donor dominance and bad behavior by donors actually does come to pass, it's obvious that there is a potential for it. And the thing that really got us at Regari to think about the donor dominance issues was a case uh, in the United Kingdom uh, in 2018. I don't know if you're familiar or your readers will be from uh, listeners will be familiar with this. It was called the President's Club uh, mm. dinner. And the President's Club was this annual fundraising dinner where lots of the great and the good would get together for a big uh, uh, meal in a livery hall in London and they would spend lots of money, pitch at auctions, raise loads, I mean, a hell of a lot of money at that event. All men, all, all, all the great and good, all men. Mainly, mainly all men. And you'll see why you, the bit that I'm coming to, which is completely, completely shocking uh, that I'm coming to around this, um, they would then like grant that out to lots of charities. Now, a journalist for the Financial Times went undercover with the event company that was um, providing the event wait staff for that 
event. Right. Right. And the women were given a dress code which included the colour and size of their underwear for a fundraising event. And of course, she wrote, and you know, they were being, you know, they were being improperly touched. They were being, you know, slapped. They were using sexist, misogynist language against them. Uh, and this all came out in a complete scandal. The President's Club, you know, lots of charities returned donations, refused donations. But it got us to thinking about why did no one know this was going on anyway? People must have been turning a blind eye to this practice. You know, it can't have been that no one knew it was happening until a journalist went in and, and you know, worked it out what was going on. Why were, were people willingly turning a blind eye because they were getting money? Were they allowing their potential donors or arm's length one removed because they were given to the residence club who were then giving to the charity? But they were somehow facilitating, um, enabling this kind of behaviour. And our chair is a, a, a Regari is a name I'm sure will be familiar to many uh, US fundraisers, Heather Hill. And this kind of relationship um, abuse, donor dominance was the thing that was really interesting her. And she said to us, well, we, we've, got to, we've got to look at this in more depth. About the same time we were doing that, the Chronic of Philanthropy uh, had also done its survey about um, sexual abuse of female fundraisers and uncovered, I think the statistic was something like 25%, it may have been more, maybe 75%, but, but a lot, you know, a significant number of female fundraisers had suffered sexual abuse and sexual harassment, and a lot of that was at the hands of donors. So that there was clear- percent is, is interesting. I, 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 would, I would think that's actually low. If if that's the number the Chronicle reported, I, I suspect that it, there's some there's some women who didn't want to report. It may have been higher. I may have got the twenty five percent was the pe people that didn't report it. So ah okay seventy five. Well seventy. But it was yeah, a I, number that was causing concern because twenty five percent is you know you say it's probably low, but that's that's a high number anyway. Even even twenty five is yeah is bad. And, and yeah. so you can you, it was clear that there are some issues that needed to be dealt with. And that's what got us into looking at this issue of power imbalances, donor dominance, and are the relationships that we have with our donors, or rather the, the relationships they have with us, always the appropriate ones and carried out appropriately. And you mentioned a few symptoms of this, uh, donors insisting on, uh, you called it mission creep, you know, uh, insisting maybe on a new program, uh, I've seen it. Uh, I, I saw it. I think the most extreme I've seen just anecdotally is uh, uh, an all boys uh, Catholic school that was offered a very large gift to start admitting uh, girls. And uh, and they acceded to that. And I, I was not working with them. I was just aware of what was happening. They were not a client of mine. I had no relationship with them uh, formally, uh, but they acceded to that. And I, I, I thought that was disappointing because it was not what their what their mission was but um that's that seems extreme uh so how extreme, in whatever not, to pardon me not necessarily extreme but not necessarily atypical so as part of the work we did on this we we actually did well, a, it, it may it may not be atypical but it seems extreme to me that you'd go from all boys to to co-ed uh, on the strength oh, of extreme response from the charity yeah an extreme yes. response from the charity yeah. oh yeah uh, I think maybe not extreme, extreme request, uh, extreme request on the on part of the donor. I see what your yeah. what your perspective. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, go ahead. You you finished your point. Well, well, we, we as part of the, the our project to look at this, we did do a survey amongst 
fundraisers. Now, this was a self-selecting survey. So we said, if you've experienced any form of what you might perceive to be donor dominance, please come and tell us how you perceived it. And even if you haven't, do come and tell us because negative results are still results. So Mm. it's self-selecting. It's not meant to be a representative sample. I think something like about 80% or so of our respondents had experienced something like this. That doesn't mean 80% of fundraisers have all experienced that because it's not a representative sample. But it did give us an idea of the types of issues that people were encountering. So what we identified, you can have dominance in th- in three ways. It's either in direction, so that's over the governance, the policy, or the administration of the charity. So that's where you get the mission creep from, where donors are trying to influence that. Also over the relationships. Uh, so that's where the, because donors are often in close proximity, particularly with fundraising in the relationship, there's, there's the way to influence the types of relationships. So that's where we get the risk of sexual impropriety coming. But also there's been examples, we've had cases reported to us, where donors have tried to have people fired or removed because they didn't like their sexual orientation or something like that. So it's about hiring and firing who they're going to work with. Um, And then you've got dominance in kind of behavior. So this is kind of the expectation that they want of the treatment they're going to get. Having, getting, trying to get undue public influence and really trying to get, uh, get benefits from their relationships with charities that they're not entitled to. And then we ask the people responding to give us examples of what they've done. So I've, I've just got saved a few from the research that we did to, to share with you, the kind of things that the people uh, were saying to us. So one said that a board member um, and donor had a check ready to write and he looked at me and said, what will, will this get me with you? Uh, there's one here where it says that a donor said that he would make a major gift if we violated tax law and acknowledged the gift at a higher level. So this is asking the charities to be complicit in illegal um, activity. Another one said that, you know, if they use their consulting firm, they could expect a nice donation. So that's that's corruption. That's bribery. You know, I'm sure there are there are there are laws against against that. Here's another one. Uh, A a board member, they said, was demanding use the charity resources for his own events. You know, it's a a he, it's it's a he, not her, it's a his own events. They were badged as supporting the charity, but didn't result in any income for the charity. And he implied that we should carry on doing this if we we wanted his continued support. And I'll just tell you one more, um, which related to that point that I made about um, relationships. and straddles with the direction uh, of of mission creep as well. And one fundraiser reported to us that as they were trying to update their history of the charity and the work they did to a more progressive lens of history, a donor said that we would lose their support if we were at all explicitly non-negative. So not just positive, but even if they were neutral about LGBTQ plus issues and race. Um, and the yeah. staff had acquiesced in that up to years for years, up until the fundraiser said that they'd had enough and left the charity. It's time for a break. Donorbox, quote, we've seen incredible results with Donorbox. In the last year, we've boosted our donations by 70% and launched new programs in literacy, health, childcare, and tailoring for our girls. That's Jennings W founder and executive director of Uganda 1018. If you're looking for a fast, flexible, and donor-friendly fundraising platform for your organization, check out DonorBox. 
donorbox.org. Now back to donor dominance. I understand. Not not scientific, but valuable uh, sure. examination of the the, the breath and the, and the different yeah. the different forms. The uh, the these these power structures. This, this unequal power can uh, can take. Yeah, I have my own uh, anecdote. Years ago, when I was a fundraiser, there was a woman who was harassed by a much older man, and uh, the the nonprofit response was just to change the relationship to to have, to have a different fundraiser. Uh, work with that that man from from then on, uh, but there were still large events where the where the that donor and that and that previous fundraiser were were together because that's the nature of large events and it it was not a it was not an adequate solution um, and and the, the idea of confronting the donor was dismissed it was just uh, like it was it wasn't a possibility that was not that was not going to be a way that we were going to deal with this. To confront the donor and and explicitly have him uh, cease his uh, abusive behavior, we weren't going to do that. Um, and so, it's interesting you know, to think why charities inadequate. won't do that because yes, they want the donor's money and they need the donor's money to help their beneficiaries, but they do have a duty of care for their employees to protect yeah. them, not just their yeah. physical well-being but their mental well-being as well. Um, and it does seem to me a little bit that fundraisers are the forgotten stakeholders in all this. And what you said is such a common complaint of so many women, female fundraisers, that many have got experiences very similar to the ones that you have just um, described in your anecdote there. But the responses always seem to be left up to individual charities to come up with a response. And if an individual charity does decide to stop working with the donor, that donor just takes their behavior elsewhere um, and carries it on at a different charity and some mm -hmm. poor, other mm -hmm. poor fundraiser is now sus um, uh, susceptible to that. Or, the, uh, may, I don't know if it's worse, but it's equally bad, they kick the fundraiser of the charity sideways and bring in someone else and neither that person gets um, more discriminatory behavior. But those things aren't addressing a structural solution, which is what we need around this. Right, right. Which, and the codes of conduct, which is what you originally approached me about, maybe, maybe one way to be able to do that. Right. And we will get to the the, the possibility of a donor code of conduct. But Rogare is is looking at this at, 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 on three different levels, uh, the sector, the nonprofits, the organizations and the individuals. Yeah. So let, let's let's flesh out some about what uh, what the sector could, is it okay if we start with the sector? I, it, it, it is. So, let's try to start broad and and become uh, and finish with the with the individuals. Yeah. So yeah. we've we're doing this, and so we're also trying to look at gender issues in fundraising and look at ways um, that we can dismantle patriar patriarchal structures in the fundraising profession. Because uh, I think one is refusing to acknowledge reality if. You just one just says oh, there's no patriarchy everything's equal everything's egalitarian yeah. everything is fine it is they, they exist and the thing what 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 becky slack one of our project team on this made the point is that the patriarchy is bad for a lot of men as well it's a system that is unjust and unfair and it's mainly unjust and unfair to women it's intersectionally is unjust and unfair to women of different demographics like people of color, but there are also a lot of men that it doesn't serve very well. 
Mm. Um, because they're not, you know, if you're in a situation where you're supposed to be negotiating your own salary, there are lots of men like me who would be very, do very, very badly about trying to negotiate my salary against the alpha male them you know, walks straight in, sits down, unbuttons his coat, leans back and like they give him whatever he wants. I would never get that. Um, so so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a structural problem. And yet what it seemed to us when we were looking at this is that a lot of the ways people try to address that is by thinking that the problem is just one of human agency. That, for example, if the problem is about salary bans and negotiating salaries um, and women are disadvantaged in that, then we give women better training in how to negotiate uh, a better salary. Yes. And yeah. that's, a, that's not a sustainable solution because we can do it for every, um, every new generation of, of female leaders that are coming in or fundraisers to, to, to negotiate their own salaries. Some people just still won't be very good at it and will still be disadvantaged. And you're leaving the unjust discriminatory structures intact. So what we are saying is rather than trying to change people's behavior in a broken system, let's just fix the try, try to fix the system. So you're, you're referring to your lean in versus lean out. Yeah, the, the, the lean approach. in. So yeah, yeah. so the lean, the lean in is, is helping the, lean the individual. feminist approach is to try yeah. to help individuals um, uh, negotiate, navigate the situation they find. And lean out is an approach where we try, we said dismantling. We, we, we purposely didn't say smash the patriarchy because when you take a wrecking ball to something, you just have a pile of wreck, uh, you know, rubble on the ground. So we want to dismantle it. We want to take it apart bit by bit, we, you know, with a wrench and spanner and then put together all the bits we've taken down in a more just and equitable manner that benefits everybody. Uh, and so at the structural level, what way we've, we're thinking that what can we do? We can, it's a structural solution. And at the structural level, at the sectoral level, we've got professional bodies. We've got, um, uh, that can all play their role in changing those things. So one of the things we suggested that we should have would be, um, maybe donor codes of conduct, which could be developed by and tested by professional institutes by talking to their organizations and their members. Then at the organizational level, organizations can implement donor codes of conduct as a way of making it clear the standards of behavior they expect from donors, but also sending a message to their fundraisers that we've got your back, we're gonna look after you. Mm -hmm. And so have all the other charities in, in the sector that we work in. So we've all signed up to this. It's a structural approach that we, 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 we are, we've signed up to. It, don't worry that we're going to kick this abusive donor away from our charity and they're just going to take their behavior to, 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 to another charity. Yeah, let it perpetuate. Yeah. And then at the individual level, it's the responsibility of everyone, especially men, to see what's going on, take responsibility for enacting change. That's when your individual agency comes in, but hopefully we're doing your acting individual agency in a changed system. Because I think if you just like keep exalting people, to change their behavior but you leave the, the underlying context exactly as it is i think we're kind of wishing against hope that we'll make substantial change rogare proposed a, a donor code of conduct yeah. uh, it's it's on your it's on your site rogare.net yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and it, it was not too well received in the us no there was a lot of pushback from that um I mean, it, we, it did have some fans, but there was a, there was a lot of pushback against it, which slightly surprised me. 
Um, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but yeah, I'm but, surprised. Uh, I'm surprised that you were surprised. Yes, um, there was less pushback on this side of the Atlantic. About there was some, but but there there, there was less. And I think it's interesting to try and unpick why that. Let's that would be. okay. Let's let's uh, tick off a couple of the the uh, the elements of of the the Rogare proposed donor code of conduct, just so folks understand what we're talking about. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the reaction here, here in the States. So, uh, num- number one, uh, there's, there's six, there's six principles. Um, I'm making a voluntary donation to a nonprofit, not buying a product or service. I therefore understand that fundraisers are not selling me a product or service and that the professional relationship between us is therefore not a customer sales relationship. Uh, I will treat fundraising staff as knowledgeable professionals, always accord them the professional respect they deserve. I will never discriminate against or harass in any way fundraising professionals or other charity staff based on any of the protected classes or characteristics. Uh, I recognize I have a considerable potential power in the relationship. Uh, I therefore promise not to exploit that power for personal gain. Uh, we may as well read the other two. Will not put conditions on my donation for the personal benefit of myself, my family, or my friends, and I will not use my power as a donor to divert the nonprofit or uh, from its mission. Uh, a, a few of those which which we talked about, and uh, they all seem perfectly reasonable to me. I know, I know you do. Well, they seem perfectly reasonable to me. I think they seem perfectly reasonable to everybody. I, I, I however, the idea in the states of asking a donor to to sign this because that's that's what you ask you ask them to sign up to this code of conduct that uh i'm not surprised that that the sector and that individual charities and that even individual fundraisers would be uh, i'm not surprised that they would object to to putting this before before donors well, I think we're not asking people to literally sign it. Maybe this was a lost in translation thing. By signing up to something, you know, it's like we all need to sign up to this this set of principles to but it's like sign up to means like buy into. So it's the idea we want donors to buy into this set of principles about behavior. All right, but I still have to uh, I still have to put it in front of the donor. They have no, to read they have they have to read it. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> They don't. They, they don't. Have have, they don't. They don't, right. they, they don't. So at no point were we ever saying you have to give this to a donor. You have to give it to them. So one of the people said, "How could I start a relationship by presenting this to them?" Well, you wouldn't, would you? Now, obviously, you wouldn't do that. That's not what you. How you would start a relationship when yeah. you go on a first date with somebody. You don't start with. If we get married, here's the prenup. I want. Here's you my prenup. Yeah. Uh, you, know, right. you, you don't. You don't do that. Fundraisers are storytellers. They're expert relationship builders. What you do is you build the relationship and at the appropriate juncture in that relationship, as you get towards something, if the donor is a very well-behaved donor, you can introduce them to this and say, what do you think of this? This is what we use to protect our fundraisers. You know, how do you think about, about this? I'm sure you've got no problem, you know, buying into, I won't say signing up, buying into these, these principles. Yeah, of course they are. If somebody is, for example, maybe, um, exhibiting the idea of mission creep. The fundraiser has got a set of six principles with the authority and already the backing of the charity, knowing the charity that can back them can say to the to, to this potential donor, well, well actually we would not 
um, permit that. That's not how we would want you because we have a code of conduct that we like our donors to buy into. Would you like me to show it to you now so you can see what's expected of you? And I, there's, what I the, there's the hard part. Okay, there's the there's the spot. What's expected of you? And and well, and again, here is you well, I, say, okay, say no, you, I, I know literally you I, wouldn't. I all we are doing that language, is but... presenting a set of principles that it is reasonable for us to expect donors to adhere to. So, for example, don't discriminate against fundraisers on basis of oh. their sex, gender, and sexual orientation. It that's, is that's perfectly. perfectly I agree that that's reasonable, and they do. So, at the moment, we know that fundraisers that, that donors are doing this. We know something needs to be done to stop them doing it. We can't, you know, we can't just put out wish, you know, wishes into the air and, and thoughts and prayers and hope it's going to finish. Oops. We need to do something to fix this. And this was the first iteration of a set of principles that we think are fair for any right thinking donor to want to buy into and say, yeah, of course I'll treat you with respect. Absolutely, I won't discriminate. And the sense that a fundraiser would be scared to, in the right way, using their skill as a storyteller and relationship builder to introduce this, struck me as a little strange. It struck me that what was being said was not so much, I couldn't possibly find a way to talk to a donor about these difficult issues. I think it was pretty, it was also a sense that I don't want to, I don't think we should do. So one person that said, we shouldn't have to do this. If they don't want to work with us, then just tell them to take their money elsewhere. But that doesn't fix the, fix the problem because they take their abusive behavior to someone else and it's somebody else's problem. Yeah, so We all have a responsibility in this sector, every single one of us, to try and confront these issues and make them better and look after our fundraisers. And none of this is anti-donor. Donors are some of the most wonderful people on the planet who use their philanthropy to make the world a better place. Some of them, probably a small number, abuse that power. And while they might be making the world a better place generally on a large scale, in a very small part of the world, they're making some people very miserable. It's time for a break. Kila, increase donations and foster collaborative teamwork with Kila the fundraiser's CRM. Maximize your team's productivity and spend more time building strong connections with donors through features that were built specifically for fundraisers. A fundraiser's CRM goes beyond a data management platform. It's designed with the unique needs of fundraisers in mind and aims to unify fundraising, communications, and donor management tools into one single source of truth. Visit Kila.co to sign up for a coming group demo and explore how to exceed your fundraising goals like never before. It's time for Tony's Take Two. Thank you, Kate. The fourth quarter is coming. Mid-September right now, the all-important fourth quarter, I don't have to remind you, but I do need to send you my good wishes. Uh, I'm, I'm sure your fourth quarter plans are well set, probably 90% set. I just hope that you have a successful fourth quarter. I hope you know what metrics to pay attention to so that you know how well you're doing week after week. I know I there was one nonprofit I worked with that 
had daily goals for some key days too. Uh, I I think that's an outlier, but uh, certainly weekly production goals in the fourth quarter, those are common. So uh, try not to get too um, worked up. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe are these platitudes? I hope not. I just hope you keep things in perspective, do the very best you can, and and that's all you can do for the all-important fourth quarter. So you have my good wishes for what I know is uh, a very important three months for fundraising. My good wishes. And that is Tony's take two. Kate. We've got Buku, but loads more time. Let's go back to Donor Dominance with Ian McQuillan. I agree with all that. So how's it, how would you, maybe I could ask you, if if you worked were at a charity and the charity had, this is what we have a, I mean, instead of a code of conduct, you could call it a covenant a covenant with our donors if you wanted to change the word around something else to make it sound more um more equal more yeah. more engaging but but you're an expert fundraiser and storyteller how would you introduce it how would you yeah, I have... none of it is to say please read this before we go on but you know that there are a set of expected behavioral standards that you want all of your donors how would you introduce it yeah uh in fairness yeah i have probably a uh, hundred and a half or a hundred. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, relationships on and off with, with a bunch of different on behalf of a bunch of different uh, nonprofit clients. Um, and that of course is assuming that in all those relationships, you even need to, it may just be enough to have that pinned up on the charity's website for people to look at. I mean, just putting it out there, normalizing and the other thing about having something like this it just normalizes the accepted standards of behavior you see you see customer codes of conduct everywhere we will not tolerate you know in 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 the commercial world the the consumer is always right the customer is king and yet while the customer may be king there are still notices up in train stations and service places everywhere and restaurants saying we will not tolerate abuse of our staff you know they they don't commercial organizations have no problem pinning up a notice that says, while you may be king and we will do everything we possibly can to make your stay, your service, your product fantastic and we'll do everything you want, we still won't tolerate you abusing our staff. They have no problem with it. Yeah. All right. But I don't want to back down from your 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 first proposition to me. You know, how would I raise it with someone versus pointing it to to uh pointing someone to a, a web page and saying you know when when you get a chance take a look at this but uh so i don't want to i don't want to back off the the original hypothetical um i was taught in law school never fight the hypothetical so i i i, I try to stay true to that as difficult as it uh, challenging as it sometimes is um yeah i would uh you know well most of the people I work with are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s because I, I work in planned giving. Uh, but the the anecdote that I told earlier about the the uh, the abusive behavior with the very much older man he was he was in his 70s or 80s, and the fundraiser was in her 30s probably at the time. Uh, so I'm not going to 
uh, get off the hook by saying, oh, older folks never do this because I, I have a personal example of one who did. Um, I would, uh, I would, I would bring it as, as something that the, the organization wants, wants this to be, a, a mutually beneficial and, and, and satisfying relationship. And, and there have been times when it, it hasn't been that way for the, for the fundraisers. And so this organization is, is trying to protect its fundraisers um, at the same time that we're protecting your interests as, as a donor, that we're, we're always going to use your gift in the way you want it to be used. And that we're always going to um, treat you with respect and not, not treat you as a, as a cash machine. Uh, so, you know, so mutually, there's there's respect and uh and and expected uh you know expected behaviors that's not such a great word i wouldn't use that in a conversation but uh expect there are expectations on on both sides hmm. and and so we're we're to protect the fundraisers and and protect the organization as as well as the folks who do the work that i do um we have this we have this sheet of uh sort of mutual expectations and and what i'd like you to i'd like you to take a look take a look see what you think when i would sit there in front of them and um and let them let them think through it and then see what and then react to to their reactions which oh. i think in 90 99% of cases would be i think this is i think this is fine and there might be a, a few within that 99% who say, I applaud what the organization is doing. That would be less than 99, but there might be like 15% or so might say, I applaud what the organization is doing. So that's, that's, I think that's how I would, I think that's so how that you I would. Are. So that's how we envisage this. We envisage this as being something that set one of those structural changes in motion that then people could say, well, this is good, fundraisers. I'll, I'll work out how I can build this into my relationships in the most appropriate way. You know, I can, like you have just done. So as you said, it's mutual, um, but all of our duties to donors are all very well codified in in the Donor Bill of Rights and, and various codes of practice. They're already well set out what they are, but as it's a, as it's a two-way exchange, we have some other duties that are competent on donors two fundraisers, just like like you said, but they've never been codified before. Um, and so one of the things that is, you know, when a number of people have tried to come up with fundraiser bill, bills of rights, um, and recently I think um, it was um, Jennifer T. Holmes and Amelia Garza up in Chicago also did one. And people don't have, seem to have the same level of opposition to the fundraiser bill of rights. They did to the donor code of conduct, but if you think about it, they're yeah. just they're just they're just chorus. They're two sides they're, of the same. They're mirror part. images, right. Yeah. right? right. So, in in Jennifer and Amelia's um, uh, bill right. of rights, it says fundraisers have the right to stop working with the donor based on the donor's behaviour towards their gender, sexual orientation. Right? Yes, it's very similar to the one that we've got in the code of conduct, except rather than saying fundraisers have a right to stop working, ours says I will as a donor will not treat them that way. 
And then in the, um, as, as what they say, um, in elaborating upon that, um, uh, Amelia uh, uh, and Jennifer say that it's up to the charity to protect the fundraiser and not work with that donor. So because rights and duties are correlative, so if sure. fundraisers yeah. have a right um, not to be subject to sexual, um, to, to, to harassment and discrimination based on their protected characteristic, that means someone has a duty not to treat them that way. And one of the people's whose duty is not to treat them that way are donors. Absolutely logical. Uh, and uh, I th- uh, very and cogent, I th- very cogent, logical explanation. Uh, absolutely. It, it's just, it's the, uh, it's, it's the, it's the execution that, that varies with the fundraiser's bill of rights. The fundraiser has, has the explicit right to, to, uh, execute, uh, to, to, uh, take advantage of to his or her or, or their right when, when there's a, when there's a, someone crosses the line, I, I hesitate to say a violation of the bill, you know, when there's a, when there's something inappropriate that violates the bill versus an expectation that, that, that the donor, it, it, it's, it's the, the reason the reason U.S. fundraisers and and the sector push back is because it's 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 where the action comes from. The fundraisers are happy to um, exploit their their rights, but not happy to ask donors to uh, control themselves. It, yeah, it's the I- it's the executing it's the executing party. Look, you know we we put our head in the sand. You, this, I would, I, you know what? In ten years, I bet, I bet, I bet the the donor code of conduct will be pretty widespread. You you can you, you can count on Americans to to do the right thing when when they've exhausted like all the other all the other possibilities. Uh, so you're ahead of your time, and can and I that's you admirable. That? That's, quite funny. that's not. I don't mean that to say you're naive. You're. It's admirable. Um, you know, the civil rights was, uh, was, uh, the movement was ahead of its time, um, et cetera. So, well, that's kind of you to say, thank you. And I, I think one of the things that you said about when you, when in the most appropriate way you present this, as you said, to your donors, and most of them will go, I, I've got no problem with that because yeah. most of them will be yeah. decent human beings. And most, many of them will say, well, I applaud you for doing that. Some of them might go, what, do you really need this? Are you telling me that? Some people treat fundraisers that way. Well, I'm sorry to say, yeah, that that does does happen, really. And then when you do that, maybe we're raising awareness in the philanthropy and donor community about the way some, and they may not be aware of this issue. And the next time that they are out with in their fellow, you know, and somebody says, oh yeah, I was talking to a very, you know, this little fundraiser, and I gave her a little slap, and we, do you know what, I, I. You really should not be doing that. It just allows, you know, the conversation to come out in different ways and to normalize standards of behavior that really ought to be normalized already. We shouldn't have to be asking for this. I agree. I agree. Um, and, and all right, so that um, so that moves us to uh, let let's uh, let, let's look a little broader to to what the. Uh, what the sector can be doing in terms of awareness, consciousness raising, uh, training, right? Mm-hmm. Let, 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 so let's talk about the sector, the the nonprofits, and the and the individuals a little more, just a little more formally, a little more structured. 
yeah. What, what what do you see as the the sector responsibilities? I think um, so. The first thing to do is to acknowledge that this is an issue. So it's like having a policy statement, and and nothing will change unless people acknowledge that there is an issue that needs to be changed, and we need to change it. So. I understand now, I wasn't quite so prepared, but I understand why people will be pushing back against this. But I think some of the pushback against it is a straw man argument. Some of it, I think, is misunderstanding where it's supposed to be and likely picking up on things that could be knocked back because it didn't sit well with the way that, in a way, um, you know, we lionize donors probably a little bit too much and philanthropists, you know, by, by treating them as the heroes of their own story and because of you and, you know, we've gone with this donor-centric approach. So I understand why people from that position may have pushed back against this. So first of all, the sector bodies, um, so AFP, Chartered Institute of Fundraising in the UK, they can take a stand on this. They can, more more than they've been doing just by, for example, running the um, so the FP has done loads of great work in running the surveys and having you know toolkits for women um, to be uh, to protect themselves to negotiate salaries. All that lean-in approach is still valid, but we need the lean-out approach to complement it and change the structure. So the sector has to uh, sexually it needs to recognise there's an issue and develop the will amongst fundraisers to say we want to change things. And that applies, let me just add, uh, here in the states, that applies to all the state organizations, too. Every state has a has a, 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 a an organization of nonprofits, uh, North Carolina Council on Nonprofits, for instance, where I am. Um, so it's not only at the national level, I just make that point. There's also state uh, state work to do, so, state organizations that uh, need to buy in. Yeah. So it's got to be, so for, for the organizations, they've got to make it easy for fundraisers to report issues. They've got to have proper complaints and whistleblowing procedures in place. They've got to have HR policies. They're going to let fundraisers know that they will be protected. So not just if a fundraiser makes a complaint about a donor, they'll just be kicked sideways. Um, and uh, then, you know, and the sexual bodies can actually support the individual organizations to do that by producing um, policies and pro forma codes of conduct and HR policies that they can take off the shelf and adapt just in the same way that now lots of those organizations produce guidance on gift accept ethical gift acceptance and refusal policies mm -hmm. that you can just take with a 10 point thing. We will not accept a donation if this, if this, you know, and adapt it to your own. They can do all the things like that that are going to just make it easy and normalize the idea that for some donors in some circumstances, this is a really serious issue in the abuse of the relationship, the result, and we're not going to tolerate it and we will, we will do something about it. And so those three levels that we worked out, sexual, organizational and individual, it's not like you do one and then progress to the other. So it's not like a hierarchy. Mm. It's it's more like you know, for any Doctor Who fans out there, Doctor Who once said in a famous episode, it's time is not linear, it's more wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. And this is a wibbly wobbly, timey wimey thing. Some individual does something at the individual layer and they may be affecting something that, you know, a big campaign done by the AFP because the AFP is run by individuals after all. And so everybody that does something in, affects these interactions and change in the structure at all of these different levels. 
But this is, I will stress, this is a structural issue, not not just a donor dominance thing and the and the and the power um, potential power abuses, but the patriarchal issues as well. And I and I'm not conflating one with the other, because I know of many female donors uh, cases where it's been female donors that have been abusing the power dynamics and have been mm. mission creeping and putting demands on who they would want to work with. So it's not to conflate those um, those two issues. But both of them are structural problems. And so we need to change the structure of the profession. And the organizations are the best place to change the entire structure of the profession are the, are, are the sexual bodies. So that's where I think this starts. You know what's interesting? Just the, the, the relative proportions. You know, we we we're talking about 25% of fundraisers. Let's just use that 25% number. I really uh, wish I'd check that figure before I came on here. Now, right. somebody is screaming at the radio saying, you've got it wrong. So I'm <laughs> sorry if I've got it wrong. But as we agreed at the start, it's a significant number and it's too much. And any number is too much. And yet the percentage of donors who are engaging in this these negative behaviors is probably much, much lower. But that's just a reflection of um, maybe 5% of donors, may, maybe even lower. But that's just a reflection of the fact that there are so many more donors than there are than there are charities and fundraisers. There are tens of millions of donors, and only a million and a half or so organizations, and uh, uh, and and I don't know how many fundraisers, but uh, there are a lot more donors out there. So just a small percentage of I, bad, I, acti- I, bad I acting think, donors. I don't think it is a small. You don't percentage. think it's that's, you don't think it's small? No, like 2%? and the reason is huh? is that when we did our survey, we found forms of donor dominance at all levels. So community fundraising, corporate fundraising, direct marketing, all of it was there was some kind, and it's so we're not just talking about large scale um, discrimination by a major philanthropist. There, there are there are you know far fewer major philanthropists than there are charities that want their money. So I'll give you, I'll just give you an example, um, an anecdote from my wife's uh, one of my wife's. So my wife's a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. She works on a number of charities for charities in the UK. She's now a director of development. And when she was working at a medical research charity, they were doing some going round and dropping clothes bags in letterboxes and saying, you know, we'll have a collection, fill it up with second mate with your unwanted clothes. And somebody rang up um, the charity, and one of Sarah's team took the call. And this angry, abusive person said. Next time one of your people comes through and puts this through the letterbox, I'm going to slam the letterbox down on them and break their fingers. And spoke in a way that the, 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 the woman who took the call was very, very upset about it. Um, and there are those little, you know, I don't want to call that a microaggression. That was more than a microaggression. Mm. There are, there are, there are behaviors like that. It's not just about discriminating against a protected characteristic. It's the way people abuse charity staff some ways, the way they exert power, the way they have an expectation, like I was reading out about the undue, uh, un, uh, in, uh, the unentitled benefits. A lot of those that examples I read out earlier were from major philanthropists and board members, but there was also examples of friends groups wanting, so one was a friends group wanting to run uh, a campaign um, using the charity's resources, but not having any oversight or accountability from the charity and refusing to run the appeal if the charity had any oversight over them. So I think there it's, I don't know how, uh, there's never been any research done to this because most of the research that academic researchers do 
into donors and philanthropists is all about the good stuff they do. No one really wants to research the bad stuff they do. And why would they? Because he's going to pay them to, to do that research. But I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I think it's probably um, a bit more widespread than we give credit for. Yeah. All right. All right. Fair enough. All right. What would you like to leave us with, Ian? What, what, what thoughts do you want uh, our, um, our CEOs, executive directors, and, and fundraisers to hear? Well, I would like to reach out to some of the people that push back against the Regari Code and say, we're not anti-donor, we're not anti-philanthropist. Um, please read what we said again. And we only think, we only ever said this is the first iteration, it's the type of thing that we can do. Each charity will come up with the one that it that it thinks is appropriate. We're not trying to impose this on people. We are saying that we need to look at how we find a structural solution for this problem that we know is there. And this is one of the ways that we can do it. So embrace it, think about it, critique it, give us your considered thoughts on it, rather than I'm not doing that because it's not the way I like to do things. Um, and and there, were, there, were, there were some other responses to that that um you know that i would wouldn't go into now but when i read them i thought you seriously cannot that can't be what you really think you cannot be thinking what you've just written down is okay but i digress so i would like to say to some of those people who think this is an imposition it, it's not we're trying to solve a problem and we need to do it together we need to do it with your help for ceos for senior fundraisers um directors of development i'd say if you think this is not an issue this is fine it's all right but those poor charities it happens to it doesn't happen with us pause and maybe critically reflect on how certain and comfortable you are with that statement because it's very likely that it is an issue and or not very likely but it is it's a strong possibility that it's an issue and it's also a strong possibility that you have some fundraising staff whose lives are being made miserable and it might be affecting their mental health and your duty of care is not protecting them. You're, you're not protecting them. So I, I, would, I would say, I know especially American fundraising is very donor-centric. It's all about lionizing donors, showing them how great they are. But... Just because the majority of donors are great doesn't mean a minority are behaving very, very badly, and that needs to be addressed. And if it's not this way, it still needs to be addressed in a way that presents a sectoral, structural approach where we're all standing together to combat this and not just kicking it down the line to the next poor charity without dealing with it. Ian McQuillan. He's director of the fundraising think tank Rogare. All these resources the donor conduct uh, code and lots of uh, other blog posts about um, not only gender issues, but just donor dominance in general and power structures. It's all at uh, rogare.net. And Ian is at Ian McQuillan. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank, Thank you for you sharing your, your thinking. Thank you. Next week, Jean Takagi with possible implications of the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by DonorBox. 
outdated donation forms blocking your supporters' generosity? DonorBox, fast, flexible, and friendly fundraising forms for your nonprofit. DonorBox.org. Fast, and flexible, friendly. You, you sure you don't mean flexible and friendly or flexible and friendly? And by Keela. <laughs> she ignores me. <laughs> and by Keela. Grow revenue, engage donors, and increase efficiency with Keela, the fundraiser's CRM. Visit Keela.co to join the thousands of fundraisers using Keela to exceed their goals. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. I'm your associate producer, Kate Martinetti. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. You're with us next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. <laughs> <laughs>